take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 15 through 21 this morning. Our sermon title is Vigilant, Wise, and Spirit-Filled. The passage reads, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. Giving thanks always and for, not in. We don't get to choose the prepositions. Giving thanks for everything. To God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so overwhelmed. Our hearts are filled right now, I think. And I know mine and I've sensed in your people. Full hearts. Minds that are focused now. Because we have, as Bruce said, we have witnessed a glorious event in your sight this morning through the Kimyal people. We have witnessed the coming of your written word to a new language, a new tribe, a new tongue. And we have seen our brothers and sisters of Papua, Indonesia, as they celebrate the coming of this written word and as they cherish the moment that they have been granted by your kind hand and they reverence and live in awe of you now because what they at once knew nothing about now has come to them. What they once even thought was impossible, you have made possible. God, we have full hearts, our minds are focused, and this text is, is, is brimming with truth. It's overflowing with truth. And I pray, God, that now you would center the message, that you would center it on your Son that you would center it on our living relationship with your Son by your grace and through your Spirit, that you, would, that you would raise up in this congregation a cry that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Do it by your power. Do it for your name, that your glory might roll over the nations from shore to shore, and that your people might be known and might make you known. Amen. We come to this text, and it is a well-known text. It's, it's, it's used and abused. I confess up front, I have done both. <laughs> I have used it and I have abused it. And I'm sure some of you fall into that category. So I just want to say to you that we're learning together, we're growing together in the Scriptures, uh, and we're lear- one thing we're learning, I hope, is that they come 
as a, as a unit. They come in a context. They have a specific meaning. And uh, when we miss that meaning, then we assign our own meaning, and then it becomes legalism. Then it becomes not a sword that pierces to the heart, but a, but a sword that lops off heads and bludgeons and cuts off limbs and maims and disfigures people. And it becomes ugly. And so we need to be careful when we come to these texts and that, we, that we don't do that to one another. And we've been looking at and holding all these together, these sermons from verse 3 until now, with this thought that we are being motivated by Paul. In light of all we have learned in the beginning and previous uh, parts of this letter, we are being motivated by Paul to live holy lives. Because one of the things that sometimes happens and you may be guilty of this this morning, I have been guilty of it, I confess, is when people come into a fresh understanding, a, a first time or a new or a deeper understanding of God's grace, human nature causes us, not grace, but human nature causes us to sometimes fall off into no-holds-barred living. Self-centered living. Because in the back of our minds, we start saying what? God is gracious. God is loving. It doesn't matter what I do. He's accepted me. And even if I sin, it's okay. It's okay. And then we not only apply that kind of thinking to ourselves, but we start applying it to one another. Our friends are, are sinning, and we're quick to say, Oh, it's okay. God still loves you. When it might be wiser to do what Paul says in the first uh, from verses 3 down to verse 6. It might be wiser to say, the judgment of God is coming. You're living in adultery? God judges adulterers. Don't live that way. Don't ever vacate the Scriptures of its teeth. It has teeth for a reason. Because your friend, who you assume to be saved, may very well be pretending to live in a life with Christ and their sin may be evidence of a deeper issue which is they don't know him and so when you're telling them oh God loves you it's okay this happy feely smiley Christianity that's so light like sugar on the lips be careful that first part of this text is so clear one motivation to God to living is the judgment of God is coming on those who practice sexual immorality and the like God, the judgment of God's coming. Another motivation is that we need to know, we need to understand who we are. Who we were and who we are. That's a motivation. You were darkness, now you are light. So live like children of the light. Right? I mean, at one point, you had no hope except you were sinner. You, you, you could not fix your problem, right? You've been there. I mean, everything you tried to do to improve yourself fell flat. I've been there. You've been there. That hard Americanism where we drive and we work and we labor because we think, I can fix my problems. And the Bible's saying, no, you need to remember that you were darkness and now you are light. Wake up, O oh sleeper, and know who you are. Realize that you are light. Live as if, live out the reality of who you are in the light. And now we come to yet a third and fourth motivation, which we're going to 
put together. The third motivation is be wise. Live a wise life. So we must be vigilant because the days are evil. Verses 15 through 17 are a motivation to godly living. You've got to be vigilant in your life because the days are evil. Or as Paul says here, be wise, not unwise. The, the reason I chose the term vigilant is because always in the Bible, Christians are implored by Jesus Christ and the apostles to live a watchful life. Right? Don't fall asleep. If you fall asleep, you will miss the coming of the groom. And you will be left behind. Remember Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. Ten virgins. Half of them prepared, watchful, vigilant, oil and lamp, ready to go. The other half what? Asleep, apparently. Living frivolously, apparently. What did they do? When they thought it might be drawing near to the time of the groom to come, what did they do? They ran to town to buy oil, and then the groom came, and they weren't there. Why? Because they weren't vigilant. They weren't prepared. They weren't ready. One motivation to godly living is, as my grandmother used to say, you don't want God to catch you doing what you're doing when He comes. That ought to work. You know? You're in the middle of berating your children, beating them up, butchering their little lives, killing their tender conscience, and Jesus appears. Glorious and on His throne. And you say, well, I don't want Him to catch me in that moment. That's a motivation, isn't it? When you're renting that cheap hotel room for what you think is a fun night, you just better understand Jesus is coming. Don't fall asleep. It's a real motivation. It's a powerful motivation. That's the next thing we must understand is we have to be vigilant. We have to stand guard. We, we're like centurions waiting for the coming of the Lord in our lives, over our personal lives. So what does he say? Our lives should be marked by watchfulness. Look what he says. Look carefully. Look carefully. Look at verse 14. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Look carefully. He's Be watchful how you walk. Why? Because our lives should be marked with wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. The Christian life is given to us in so many ways in the Old Testament. One way is through the book of the Proverbs. You ever read the Proverbs? I mean, I went through those with my children. And you're, you're, we just try to do one proverb a night, you know? And even me, and I'm sitting there with my children, and I've been through Proverbs a lot of times, I'm thinking, this is so disjointed. I mean, it's just, it's just a bunch of stuff. These pithy little statements. Until it dawned on me, the whole of Proverbs is written in the context of Proverbs chapter 2. The wise and the unwise. There's a wise way to live. And there's an unwise way to live. And then it dawned on me even further as I kept reading those Proverbs to my children. What God taught me was 
There's only been one wise man. And his name is not Carlton. What is his name? What is his name? Jesus. The Proverbs are not written that you might fulfill them. They are fulfilled in Christ. And they're given to us that we might see his character and live like him. If your hope is in being really wise in your own eyes, the Bible says you're a fool. So what you have to be is to walk like a wise man in the pattern of the wisest man, the only wise man, Jesus Christ. So we follow his path, the path to righteousness, the narrow path, right? So, uh, you know, the book of Proverbs witnesses to this. Paul, over and over in his letters, witnesses to the need to be watchful and to be wise in our decisions, in practical, everyday living. This is our call. Our lives should be marked by obedience to the will of the Lord. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish. Don't be unwise. Don't be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, he said earlier in the text for us, last week we covered a text that said, in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And now he's saying, in verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. It's this, it's this contrasting two statements, aren't they? Try to discern what the Lord's will is. Understand what the, word of, of the will of the Lord is. I thought you said it's hard to find, Carlton. Last week you said it's great. Yes. Now you're saying it's black and white. Yes. Can't be. The Bible says so. In other words, what we're talking about in this text is not identical to the earlier text in verse 10. Though it looks like it on the surface when you dig deep, what you find is this understand what the will of the Lord is is an imperative that we obey the revealed commands of God. Walk as a wise man, not unwise. How do we know if we're wise or unwise? Because God's told us what is wise. Follow the way of righteousness, which is Jesus Christ and His pattern of life. Follow it. So we have no excuse in that way to say, well, I don't know. Sure, we do. It's revealed to us in the Word of God. These are not gray areas. These are specific commands, specific ways of wisdom versus unwise and foolish living. So we are to know, we are to understand, and in this text we see in verse 17 the command to obey the will of the Lord. Understand what the will of the Lord is can be understood clearly when we say, obey what God has said to do. That's what Paul's saying. You want to be wise? Obey the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. And so, we have to live vigilant lives because the days are evil. I haven't said anything about verse 16. Why must we live vigilant? I'll insert wartime lives. Why must we live lives of wartime prudence, wisdom. Because the days are evil. Look at verse 16. The days are evil. Be careful, watchful, vigilant in how you're living, not as unwise, but as wise. Not being foolish, but understanding what God has revealed for you to do in His Word. Why? Because the days are evil. 
There's no argument over that, is there? Not from inside the church. Nobody is arguing about that. Everybody agrees. The days are evil. They're wicked. They were wicked in Paul's day. They're wicked now. And if you fall asleep and you live unconsciously as if you will automatically obey the will of God in this world, you will be consumed with evil. You cannot fall asleep at the will. The Christian life is not coasting on cruise control until we get to the gates of heaven. If you do that, don't be shocked when you find you were never saved and you're at the gates of hell when you die. There is no cruise control in God's economy. There's watchfulness, there's vigilance, and you're in a war. And the days are evil around you. The captain of a, of a, group, a, a cohort of soldiers would be a fool to say, well, let's all just take it easy here on the front lines. We'll be alright. We'll get there somehow, some way. He shouldn't be shocked when all of his men are obliterated in battle. What does he tell them? Don't fall asleep. The enemy is real. The days are evil. They are roaring to have us and devour us. We must be men of courage in this day, following the wise path, following our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ch children and youth, let me just say this to you. Especially you young people that are in high school, early college years. Listen to me. The world would love nothing more than for you to fall asleep and just coast. They want you to live on cruise control. That's what the world wants from you. That's what Satan wants from you. For you to just say, well, you know, I'm in. I don't have to worry. God loves me. I can just cruise on. Because in that moment of, of, of cruising, of taking in, of just saying, you know, life's hard. I'm just going to do what everybody else does. In that moment, you're living as a fool. You're living unwise. You bring no conviction to their life. Your friends will encourage this kind of living. What I'm saying to you, young people and older people, and I have a burden for you, youth and young children, about to be youth and college students back here. Listen to me. The world wants you to take it easy. God is saying, stand guard. The world wants you to put the sword of the Word in its sheath and just cruise. God wants you to get it every day and drink it like fresh water, and eat it like bread that fills the soul, and know the One who walked the path before you. He has clearly marked it. Follow Him. Know Him. Follow Him in this life. Don't cruise. It's uphill. It is not for the faint. It is not for the weak-hearted. This life of the Christian journey is hard. But Jesus pulled no punches when He said, if you follow Me, you will lose your family, you will lose your friends, you will lose your religion, you will lose your property, you'll lose it all. And His encouragement to that, added to it, then take up your cross and follow Me. He didn't call us to cruise. He called us to hold a cross. And don't ever dumb that down to yourself or to your children or to your spouse or to your friend who's struggling. 
Don't just void that of its power and say, well, Jesus, Jesus is just talking about sacrifice. No! No. He's saying, if you follow me, you die. You want to follow me? You've got to be crucified on a cross. Every dream, every passion, every desire, every plan, every good thought and dream of a white dress and walking down an aisle, getting married, getting rich, living in a home in comfort with healthy children until you're old and gray and die. Dead. You follow Christ, He'll call you to the Kimyon. He'll put you in the teeth of persecutors in Iran. And He'll cause you to stand when they say, reject your Lord. And you'll die. And he said, that's wise. That's what Paul's saying. That's wise. Don't be a fool. Don't follow the American dream. That's foolish. That's, that's hypocrisy. Follow me. That's what Paul's saying. He's motivating us here to live holy lives because the days are evil. The days are evil. How, how then will we do it? Redeem the time. The first part of verse 16. Making the best use of the time. That's the ESV. Others say redeeming the time. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous resolved, as a young man wrote, resolved never to waste another moment of this mortal life. He was 19 years old when he wrote that. And by all evidence of his life, he didn't waste any more time. Listen, a worldly way to put this is this. Maybe you'll catch it. You're either spending time or you're investing time. Right? How do we spend time? We frivolously live our lives with no recognition of the kingdom of God. So then everything we do is a waste of time. It's a spending of time. The problem with spending time is you eventually bankrupt yourself. You have no more to spend. What does the Bible call us to do? Redeem the time. The world would say it like this. Invest your time. Every week... Have you not heard this? Everybody has the same amount of time. You ever heard that? Franklin and the day planner people, they love that line. Everybody has the same amount of time every day, 24 hours. Those who live and get ahead in life, plan it. No. Anathema. Especially for people like me. There's a lot of daytimer people that are spending their time. I'm not anti-daytimers. No, I don't use one. I've tried. Doesn't work so well for me. But what the verse is talking about is not planning time. What the verse is talking about is investing time in the kingdom. So, you may be going about your to-do list and someone interrupts you. You been there lately? Dude, I got five more things to get done before it gets dark and I got to go home. Time investors recognize this as a divine appointment 
And when necessary, they forget the to-do list and sit down and invest time into the kingdom by loving that person. Drinking a cup of coffee, talking about struggles, presenting the gospel. It's not a waste of time. Well, I won't get my to-do list done. It's okay. Your to-do list won't go to hell. That person might. Our culture, the screw tape letters really helped me with this. Our culture, controlled by Satan, has brainwashed us. You remember in screw tape letters, the little nephew demon who's plaguing the man, and, and he's in British uh, culture where everything's, they're more punctual than we are, and they're more driven in a lot of ways they were than we are. And C.S. Lewis does a masterful job of saying, look, you need to distract this guy. Well, how do I distract him? You remember what he said? Keep him busy. Give him more things to do. He'll never think about his plight or the plight of others. So many of us are crushing our children under the weight of our own to-do lists, of our own tasks, and their little, their little hearts are being trampled when they come, and they just want to be taught. They want to learn. They're asking questions, and we're shooing them all the time. I got time for that right now. I got time to get, I got things to get done. I'm guilty of this. I'm, at that point, I'm wasting time. I'm, in, I'm spending time, not investing it. I need to embrace my little ones at those moments and invest in the kingdom. Right? The Bible's cool. It's just, it, it's just when it gets in our kitchen. It starts living with us, stepping on our toes. Then all of a sudden it's like, put that thing up. Shut it. <laughs> I understand. It hurts me. It convicts me. That's why I have to preach on Sundays. So somebody else can feel my misery. <laughs> so the first motivation is here is clear. Be vigilant, living wise lives because the days are evil. How do we do that? Invest, not spend time. Invest. Now, we must never, this is the second thing I want to say, we must never be controlled by substance. 18, verse A. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Uh, this, this text at, at first look, glance might look like it's out of place. But then let's dig a little deeper. Christians should never give control of their lives to any substance. I've expanded it from wine to substances because, as we know, there are many substances. Right? Now, I'm not going outside of that realm to talk about sex or other things that we can give our lives to because that's not what he does here. But it does include prescription drugs, illicit drugs, alcohol, tobacco, anything, any substance whereby we give control over to that substance. And we say, you have control over my life. Okay? That's what Paul's talking about. Christians should never do this. Ne never. That's the first thing we see. Alcohol or drugs are particularly dangerous to Christians. We're supposed to be investing our time in the kingdom. We're supposed to be vigilant, standing guard, watchful for the Lord's return. 
Drunk people aren't watchful for anything. That's the logic of the passage. When you're consumed by these, especially attitude and, and, and mind-altering drugs, you're not ready. Now, I haven't served on the front line in military. Okay? Chuck has. He could tell us, I think, as well as anybody in a physical war, how foolish it is for a soldier to be drunk with wine. That is a death trap to a soldier. Matter of fact, the military for a long time limited alcohol use in the service during active times of war. They limited it. They restricted it. Why? Because at any moment you could fall under attack and at that moment that you've given yourself over to alcohol or another drug, you cannot fight a war. So they wisely limited that use. Paul's doing the same thing here. We're in the middle of a war, a spiritual conflict, and we have to be careful not to give ourselves over to any substance, any substance that takes us away from our watchfulness. That's pretty clear, okay? So, Paul and the rest of Scripture call all Christians to live in the spirit of temperance and moderation. I admit that it would be easier had Paul simply said, do not drink wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how I read this passage for a long time. Because that's what I wanted it to say. But that is not what this passage says. It says, do not be drunk with wine. Strong drink. For this is debauchery. Paul and all of Scripture, the Proverbs, the Psalms, the Gospels, the letters and epistles, the prophets, all tell us the same message. You cannot, as a child of God, be controlled by a substance. But, and it's a big but, it does not outlaw wine, strong drink. And he has more than one occasion to do it, and God never does it. And I think, just so I can tell you, I think when we go to that step, when we outlaw what God has not outlawed, we're in grave danger. So what is my stance? And what is the stance of the Scripture? We should submit to our governing authorities in our use of alcohol. You live in a dry county, you should not have alcohol. Nor should you drink it. You say, I think that's silly. It very well may be to you. But it's still the law. And Romans 13 says we're to submit to our governing authorities. They have been given as stewards over us. Youth, anyone under 21, do not use the failed argument with me. Well, at 18, I can serve the country, and in that country, I can't even drink. That's redneck. <laughs> I'm just going to call that what it is. That's silly. I can vote, I can fight an army, but I can't drink a beer. 
Now you're confusing the issue. The fact is, the government in our country and in our state says, if you are not 21, you cannot drink alcoholic beverages. Therefore, you cannot. And if you do, you are breaking the law. You are disobeying the steward of God to protect you. And you should not be surprised when the ills of your habits wreak havoc on your life. And that goes for adults too. When it says certain specific things cannot be done, like drinking and driving, open containers, we just get real personal, real specific. That's what it means. So don't do it. They are wise stewards. They've been given charge over us. They have set boundaries. We should stay in them. I don't care if you like it or don't like it. I may not like it. And, when, and worse, when we teach our children by example and word to break the governing authorities, we have undermined every level of authority completely. So the next time you set a rule and they break it, don't be shocked when they look at you and say, well, I just didn't think that was important. Where would you get a crazy idea like that? From you. We should submit to our governing authorities. We should not encourage others to live outside of faith when dealing with this issue. Romans 14 says, That which is of faith is not sin, and that which is not of faith is sin. So when you ask me, may I drink? I cannot answer that question for you. I can point you to Scripture and to wrestle with the Lord and to come to a stance based on His Word and His call in your life and no more. I can tell you cannot be drunk. I can tell you cannot break the laws of the state. That's as far as I can go. Then it's between you and God to develop a conscience and a witness. You see? We shouldn't be laying down legalism as a rule where God doesn't legalistically require it, and we shouldn't be preaching antinomianism and no law so as to encourage everybody to just do what they want to do on their own reconnaissance. If they're doing it not... Listen, if you're drinking alcohol today, you need to be doing it in faith. And if you're not, it's sin. For you, amen. If you're not drinking alcohol today... For any reason besides faith in Jesus Christ, it is a sin. There are more people who will burn in eternal punishment and damnation for legalism than will ever burn for alcoholism. So don't even give me the thing of, well, Carlton, they might turn into alcoholics. Don't tell me that. We hadn't outlined the buffet yet. We haven't said people can't go down to the Western sizzling and eat until they're just overly stuffed and gluttons. We haven't outlawed it yet. And to God, is being ruled by the belly the same as an alcoholic. So listen to me when I say God is wise. Is He not? We need to live as wise. What He has said in this passage is do not be drunk. That is debauchery. It's dissipation. It is not being vigilant. It is not redeeming the time. It is not being on guard when you're drunk, when you get drunk. It is always a sin. There's no exception to that. 
And we shouldn't encourage others on this issue except to encourage them to develop conscience stances based on the Scripture and faith. Anything else is sin. And finally, we should seek to exercise wisdom at all times. So there are venues and times where drinking is encouraged in the Bible. See John chapter 2. Jesus at the wedding feast when He created wine. He is encouraging drinking. Why? Because, and listen, this is why I said, you be careful what you outlaw in your home to your children. Because when they get to the kingdom, when we're all in the kingdom, we're going to drink wine. Real, unadulterated, uncut wine. Alcoholic beverage at the table of God. Why? Because it is the sign of joy. It is the sign of celebration. It is the sign of captives being set free. Blind being able to see. Deaf being able to hear. Dead men coming to life. That is in the kingdom. If you don't believe me, read Revelation. So what you outlawed in your home and said Jesus was against, when they get in heaven, they're going to look at you. When they get in the kingdom, they're going to look at you and say, what's this? <laughs> Be careful. Be careful. I do not say this pridefully. I say it by God's grace. I don't, I've never been drunk. But for the first 21 years of my life, that was the case because of an unfaithful allegiance to self-righteousness. And it was, un, it was not honoring to God. And since then, by God's grace, I've come to a position of faith and I live in faith in this issue. And by His strength and by His grace, I have not failed to uphold the call of this Scripture. And if you have, there is forgiveness. And the solution may be for you not to drink at all, ever. But don't make that decision for everybody. Because it's deadly, and it's legalistic, and it kills. All right. So, we're to live vigilant lives, wise lives, in all situations. And he gives this, and do not be drunk command, but be filled with the Spirit. We should live a Spirit-filled life. In alternative to the world who can only find their joy in a momentary drunken stupor, we have the Spirit of God so that it never runs dry. At, 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 at 2 a.m., the fountain is closed. No more alcohol can be served. And they got to go home. And at 2 a.m., the Spirit in you is available and you can be filled to overflowing. And that can be at 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. or 12 p.m. or 12 a.m. in this continent, on that continent, in this life, and in the next life. Why would you settle? Motivation for God to live in? Why would you settle for the pleasures of this world when you have the pleasures of the Spirit-filled life through Christ? That's the motivation. That's the motivation. We live Spirit-filled lives. Spirit-filled lives have a characteristic. Every Christian, first of all, has the Spirit-filled life. Let me show it to you quickly. Ephesians 1, verse 13 through 14. All of us have the Spirit. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. It is not an experience limited to a few super holy people who speak in tongues or work miracles. It's everybody who is in Christ has the Spirit. You've been sealed with the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So we all have the Spirit. This is for all Christians. Secondly, we see that every Christian has access to the fullness of the Spirit. Not just sealed by the Spirit, but the fullness of the Spirit. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knee... Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, by, He may grant unto you strength, strengthen with power through His Spirit in your inner being. We're sealed by the Spirit. We have the Spirit in our inner being. What? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You can be sealed by the Spirit and not experience on a daily basis the fullness of God. But that's available to you as a Christian. The fullness of God. The experience of the fullness of God every day. It's available to you through the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit is not an experience. It is a submission to God's control in all aspects of life. How do I get that? Verse 18. And you do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. That is handing your vigilant, watchful, wartime life over to a substance, and now it controls you. What's the alternative, Paul? Be filled with the Spirit. A Spirit-filled life is submission to God through the Spirit instead of any other alternative. Now, I'm not going to expand it, but I do want to say to you, because alcohol may not be your struggle, there are other things the Bible warns that we not submit ourselves to. I'll use one that's common to all men, and that is money. We are not to submit ourselves to the love of money, for in that is the root of all kinds of evil. But we are to submit ourselves to the Spirit and live in the fullness of the Spirit. I'll substitute another one. Sex. Sex is a gift from God. Wealth is a gift from God. Alcohol is a gift from God. All of them in extreme are no longer gifts, but they're gluttonous and they are dishonoring to God. And they will destroy your life. Wealth will destroy your life. Sex will destroy your life. Alcohol will destroy your life. You get it? That's, that's as clear as I can make it. What he's driving at is if you turn your life over to anything besides the Spirit, it will not lead you to the kingdom, but rather to hell. So don't do it. That's his motivation. Be Spirit-filled. Everyone has access to this because we've all been sealed with the Spirit and now we have the power in Christ to live in the Spirit and the fullness of God. The fullness of the Spirit is expressed fully through submission to God in all aspects of my life. So what does that look like? I knew you were going to ask that question. What's better is Paul knew you were going to ask that question. 
So he answered it. He answered it. The Spirit-filled life is characterized by sober recognition of the judgment to come, full recognition of a change from darkness to light, and vigilant, wise living according to God's will. That's what the Spirit-filled life looks like. I'm aware of the coming judgment. I know that I'm a child of the light, and I do not turn control of my life over to anything or anyone, just the Spirit. That's what it looks like. What's the fruit of it? What, what does it produce? We know what drunkenness produces. Revelry and the like. Out of control living. Talking out of your head. Foolishness. Death. Alcoholism is a plague. And it's an imitation. Somebody asked me not long ago, why do you think so many people in our culture are addicted to drugs? My answer is simple. They're looking for the high that only the Spirit can give them. That's what they want. They were created to enjoy God forever. And without God, they are looking to enjoy life to the fullest. We shouldn't be shocked. I'm shocked when I meet somebody that's a prude and they're not a Christian. I think those people have a problem. I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? If I wasn't in Christ, I'd be living it up. Because if I was going to die and go to hell, I'd get all I could get right now. I feel sorry for legalistic lost people. I'm only saying that halfway funny. I mean, I do. I feel sorry for them. And they're hard to reach with the gospel because they don't think they need it. Give me a drunk in his stupor any day, and I'll give him a cup of coffee and tell him how he can get that high with the Spirit rather than some wine, some cheap bottle. You give me a legalist, I'll never convince him. Rarely ever will they be saved. Like the Pharisees. Because they don't think they need it. Jesus said, I go to the drunks and the prostitutes because I came to help those who know they're sick. So listen to me. If you're addicted to wine, you're addicted to drugs, you're addicted to sex or money or anything else, let me tell you, the solution is the Spirit. You're looking for what only God can give you. So come home. That's a cheap high. It's going to wear off. The Spirit will never wear off. He has sealed you and He has guaranteed you for your inheritance. And the fullness of God is available to you. So come home, sinner. Come home. The Spirit-filled life is characterized by a life of praise and building one another up in Christ. You want to see the fruit of, of the Spirit versus those controlled by other things? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Godly living, Spirit-filled living is filled with the praise from the lips. You've been around those Christians, haven't you? Where everything they do, everything they say, the very expression of their face just beams the Spirit. Man, they're singing. They're going along. They're humming. They're, they're vibrant. They're alive. They're high. 
That's the characteristic. That's the fruit of godliness. And they're building one another up in Christ. Their conversation is about centered on Christ. Their thoughts are on Christ. The Spirit-filled life is characterized by a heart of thankfulness to God. The Spirit-filled life is characterized by a heart of submission to one another in Christ. Hey, I've taught on a very difficult, I understand controversial thing in part of this message when it comes to alcohol. And now let me say this to you. Your conscience doesn't allow you to partake in strong drink. I respect you. And I'm committed to help you by submitting my right to you in your presence to not offend you. And mature people who abstain from strong drink submit to those who do drink and say, as long as you're within the limits of the Bible, though I don't partake, I do not judge you. I do not speak a word of anathema over you. I affirm it. If it's in faith, I accept it. I love you. That's a beautiful submission. It's hard. It can only be done through the Spirit, but that's beautiful. And it's the fruit of a truly Spirit-filled life. If you can't do that, you're not living a spirit-filled life. If you're flaunting your liberty to cause your brother to stumble, you're not living a spirit-filled life in that time, in that moment. And if you're being rigid and opposing those with your standard on to others, you're not living a spirit-filled life. What's the proof? The fruit of submission. So when we are motivated by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, we... Above all people, praise God, thank Him, and live in submission to Him and others. It's a beautiful thing, this community that Paul's talking about. We're called in this chapter to fight the temptation of sin by recognizing the coming judgment, remembering the change we have undergone from darkness to light, and living the vigilant, spirit-filled life. By His grace, we can live in the power, in His power, for His glory.